So welcome again. Now, if I, uh, if I blindfolded you and I brought you into my house, but you didn't know it was my house, and I took off the blindfold and you looked around, chances are you might think that you were in the middle of a small town library because my family is nuts about books. There are literally books everywhere in our house. Everyone, almost everyone in our house uh, loves to read. And growing up as a kid, I, I loved books too. We didn't have near as many books in our house, um, but I loved books. And I, w- I was thinking lately, I don't know what triggered it, but um, I've been remembering this book in particular that I loved to read as a kid. It was a book about, about this guy. I'll give you a picture and see if you uh, can figure out. Maybe I'll give you a picture. Oh, there we go. Um, a book about this guy. I don't know if anyone knows. It, there's a clue right here in his hand. He's holding a hammer. Anyone know who that might be? A lot of you know John Henry. Um, now, uh, this book was about John Henry, and I'm not sure why I loved it so much. It kind of actually freaked me out a little bit, because um, the book is about this John Henry folk legend, um, kind of American folklore, and uh, John Henry and people like him, for a period of time, were in charge of making tunnels in the sides of mountains for the building of the railroads. And, uh, and it's hard work, but they did it well. Um, and the story that I read as a book was about John Henry, and you know, they did this work. And then someone came along and they made a machine, a steam drill, um, that he thought was mighty fine. I remember the lyric of a folk song about it going. Uh, and, uh, and, and, he, and he said, you know, we're going to put these guys out of work because we've got a machine that can do a better job than these people. Well, John Henry said, no way. And he challenged the steam drill to a competition to see who could drive further into the side of a mountain making a tunnel, um, him or the, or the machine. And uh, the competition, big epic competition. And when it was over, John Henry had driven 15 feet into the side of the mountain and the steam drill had only driven, does anyone know? How many feet? Nine is what I remember from the book. See, I... Apparently, you didn't read the book as many times as I did when I was a kid. Um, and so, uh, so he beat the machine, and it's a great, you know, great celebration for humans triumphing over machines. But then after that, um, because he had worked so hard to beat the machine, um, he worked so hard that his heart stops, he falls over dead, and he dies with the hammer in his hand. Not really sure why I like that story so much. It's kind of a terrible story. Only that, I, I, think, if I, I think back on it, I, I think the reason I like that story so much is I appreciated the fight in a man who would not easily let himself be replaced. But the truth is, we as people, we get replaced all the time. Uh, Remember these guys? Um, These are the guys you used to see not at a gas station, at a service station, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, When you'd pull up and they had to run these high-tech gas pumps, you know, normal citizens couldn't be expected to do this um, on their own, and so these guys guys did it. When's the last time you drove into a gas station and saw one of these guys? Uh, Now, if you want to see one, you can go to Oregon, where it is illegal to pump your own gas. How do I know? Because I have family in Oregon, and I've had a few awkward moments at gas stations as I've tried to pump my own gas, and some guy comes along resting it for my hand. But, um, But otherwise... You don't see these guys. They've been replaced. They swipe your card, push a button, anyone can do it. Or when's the last time you walked into a skyscraper and saw a guy like this? You know, once upon a time there was a a man like this in a very high-tech, expensive piece of uh, technology called an elevator. There were like these knobs and things, and you tell them what floor, and there's like a gate, and they had to do all of this stuff. Now um, you walk into a building, and this guy has been replaced with, with this. 
right? I mean, this was a guy, he had a pension, a union, a family to feed, and now he's been replaced with this. <laughs> or uh, closer to home. There was a time, once upon a time, when my wife Jocelyn, this is a really old picture, when my wife Jocelyn liked to snuggle me. <laughs> and then along came Netflix in her reheatable rice bag, and I'm out of work. Um, it's, it stinks being replaced, doesn't it? Um, talk to Mike Matheny about that this morning. It stinks being replaced. Um, some of you are just like, what? I, I'm sorry if I broke the news to you in church. Um, it stinks being replaced, um, but it happens in life all the time. People get, uh, you know, trade, spouses trade in their spouse for a younger, better model, or employers hire someone who is more skilled at, at the latest, you know, whatever in, in your field, or people find new best friends and, and we find ourselves being replaced. And, and it's painful to be replaced no matter how, how it happens. It hurts being replaced, but it is especially insulting to be, I think, um, and certainly John Henry would agree, it's especially insulting to be replaced by a machine, by technology. But if you look around the world, this is happening increasingly at at just crazy levels. Self-driving cars. Anyone excited about self-driving cars? Anybody? Anyone freaked out by it? Yeah, you're freaked out by self-driving cars. I've seen you like, you know, eat and dial and try to drive with your knee. And I'm telling you, I'll take my chances with a computer any day over some of you. Missouri, you don't even have driver's ed here, do you? I don't know about how that works. But, but self-driving cars, I mean, they're kind of novel. I, I know a lot of people are like, oh, that'd be cool. Like a dr- car drives itself. That'll change the way I do vacation. And that'd be really neat. And, and it's kind of novel. You know who self-driving cars are not novel for? The three million people in America who make their living off the transportation industry, they're not sitting around going, oh, self-driving cars, how cool. They're going, someone's coming after my job. The machines are putting me out of work. Or you think about how manual labor is already changed in America, but how it's yet changing. Um, For some of us, when we were young, you got a summer job stocking shelves at a supermarket or even working in a warehouse. I want you to see how a company called Boston Dynamics is working to change all of that. Take a look at this video. Now, be honest, how many of you are waiting for the moment where the robot punched him? <laughs> it's like reason 10,001 that machines might be better than us as, uh, as employees. You know, give me that hockey stick. I'll show you what, yeah, whatever. Um, but, but I mean, so, so that's changing. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're going, yeah, I mean, so driving or warehouse work. I mean, that's, that's stuff no one wants to do. Uh, for some of you, you sit a little higher on the food chain. I want you to know that technology is even disrupting the most elite, the most well-respected professions out there. Take a, take a look at this video. 
IBM has a bot named Watson. You may have seen him on TV destroy humans at Jeopardy, but that was just a fun side project for him. Watson's day job is to be the best doctor in the world, to understand what people say in their own words and give back accurate diagnoses. He's already doing that at Sloan Kettering, giving guidance on lung cancer treatments. Just as autos don't need to be perfect, they just need to make fewer mistakes than humans. The same goes for doctor bots. Human doctors are by no means perfect. The frequency and severity of misdiagnoses are terrifying, and human doctors are severely limited in dealing with a human's complicated medical history. Understanding every drug and every drug's interaction with every other drug is beyond the scope of human knowability. Especially when there are research robots whose whole job it is to test thousands of new drugs at a time, and human doctors can only improve through their own experiences. Doctor bots can learn from the experience of every doctor bot, can read the latest in medical research, and keep track of everything that happens to all their patients worldwide, and make correlations that would be impossible to find otherwise. Any of the doctors in the room feeling a little insulted right now? Hey, if if you are. I understand. I'm with you. I'm watching that, and I'm thinking, if doctors can be replaced, how easily could I be replaced by a robot? Actually, you know what? I've been watching that Doug Moss guy, and、uh, <laughs> you notice 35 minutes talking, brilliant messages, no notes. <laughs> Suspicious. I don't know what's going on here.、Um, it's. It's a.、Uh, it's not just our jobs, though. It's not just our jobs. Here, here's here's where this gets weird for me. It's not just our jobs. Artificial intelligence, robots—they're beginning to move into territory that has always been distinctly and exclusively human territory. I want to show you one final video. Of what a robotics lab—really, it's probably the premier robotics lab in the whole world.、Um, what they're doing over in Japan. Take a look at this. Wow. So, get in, please. Thank you. こんにちは。あの僕の日本語は全くダメなのですみません。Sure. Let's speak in English then. I do know a few robot jokes. Would you like to hear one? Please. What is a robot's favorite kind of music? I don't know. Heavy metal. <laughs> <laughs> That was terrible.、Uh, she's the first really fully autonomous android that we've tried to create. I created her mind. <laughs> Dylan Glass is an American engineer who has long had a fascination with robots. He came to Japan specifically because he knew the country was ready to embrace robots on an entirely new level. You know, I've created her her perception of the world. She can also, you know, refer back to, like, oh, remember when we did that?、Uh, things like that. So, how would you describe her? Is she a friend? Is she a creation? Is she a robot? Your project? I guess I think of her as sort of a creation,、uh-huh. but I I think of her in a social way. So, I feel like she depends on me. Yeah. And I feel a responsibility to kind of help her out with things when when she does things well. I'm kind of proud of her. Really?、Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, I know she's not. You know, a person, but there,、yeah. certain things in your mind are triggered, and and the fact that she's trying to learn to do social tasks and、uh-huh. and seeing her improve and and get better at that is、uh, is sort of a、that's、point of fascinating. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what makes us human, right? We are a collection of our experiences and memories and knowledge. Right. So the question is, do we want her to be human, or do we want her to be better? What's your answer? I want her to be better. 
people are fundamentally susceptible to all these things like like greed, like self-preservation, and all these things that yeah. you know sometimes cause problems, right? For us. And robots, you know, we're creating something new. It doesn't have to be a person. Maybe they don't need all of those things. Maybe in some roles they could they could be better than people. It's weird, isn't it? And for some people they they watch that and they feel a sense of relief. Maybe that's you. Because it's almost like, okay, good, there's something better, better than humans coming along. That means we, pressure's off, you know, we can take a break from trying to run this thing. Maybe the robots can solve all of our problems. We'll be over, you know, on a beach somewhere sipping margaritas while the robots take over. And, you know, that's, that's like a relief to some people. And for some of us, there's this anxiety that creeps in that goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Suddenly we start to think like those Amish people that we've made fun of for about 100 years, maybe they've been onto something. And there are a lot of us who feel like, do we just need to tap the brakes? Is this good? Is this headed in a good direction? See, I think this changing world is prompting a very important question, a very healthy question that we should probably be asking all the time. And the question is, where is our place? Where is our place? I think that's the, the anxiety that we feel when we watch videos like that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that okay? Is, is she, this android, is she encroaching somehow on territory that is ours? What does that mean for us? Where is our place? And, and for a long time in history, it was pretty easy to answer this question. We were the top of the heap. We were the best. We were the smartest. We could outlive, outlast everything else. I mean, even if we weren't the strongest, we could figure out how to beat the stronger things. For a long time, it was really, really it was clear where our place was, but now in this world where, where you know, robots can do the work better and they, you know, they don't get mad when the guy pokes them with a stick and, and they, can, they can answer our questions better and they can even interact in a more kind way and they're not subject to jealousy, it begins to make us wonder, like, so wait, wait, where do we fit into this whole thing? I think it's a healthy question to ask. It's important in life to know where your place is, to fully embrace and live within your place. And to answer this question, uh, beginning today, but through the rest of the series, we're going back to the best place I know to answer this question, where is our place? When, when it seems like we're so easily replaced, where is our place? Well, we're going back all the way to the beginning. Ironically, we're going to answer this very modern question with the most ancient part of the Bible. We're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Now, if you've not read Genesis, it is a book about origins. And the first few chapters especially talk about our origins. If we are going to find our place again in a world that is, is so dynamic and changing every day, where it seems like it's so easy for us, the people who used to be the top of the heap, to be replaced, if we're going to find our place again, then we have to go back to understand what our place was in the beginning. And so today we're going to do that. We're going to go back to the beginning, to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. 
And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it and every winged bird. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I mean, you can hear it in the poetry of creation, can't you? Right away, it's saying something about our place. It's in this, this crescendo of creation as God goes from you know, the, the big and the vast to the, to the specific. Uh, the glory increases with every step, the complexity, the delight. And, and God steps back after each day and he looks at it and he, and he sees that it's good. He declares it to be good. But then as, as things build at the pinnacle of creation, what does God do? He creates humans. Male and female, he created them. Not only male and female, but in the image of God, in the image of himself, he created them. See, I think if we're going to understand our place, we've got to understand what our place was then. And and this phrase, the image of God, it's so significant. I believe this is the key for us understanding our place. And theologians for millennia have been wrestling with what, is, what does this mean? At, at its linguistic root, the image of God just means that somehow we were made, we were created in a shadow or in a reflection of God. That means that some part of God's being, his likeness, becomes ours and, and we get part of his attributes. But people have wrestled with what that means. Does it mean that, that like God we have an intellect? Is that what it means to be made in the image of God? That, that we have rationality that we can think critically, that we can think deeply. Is it about our spirituality? That we've got a spirit, that we have a soul, 
Is that what makes us distinct? Is that what makes us like God? Is it that we have feelings and not just, you know, kind of the raw instinctual feelings? Is it that we can feel empathy and compassion? Is it that we can even feel jealousy when a relationship's threatened? Is it our creativity? Not just that we can dance and paint. I mean, they're teaching robots to do all that stuff. Is it that we can, we can turn something on its head? Um, someone gave me this example that, uh, that, that we can do things like if, if you're a drill bit maker, making drill bits, it's the creative power to say, our job is not to make the best drill bits out there. Our job is to figure out a way to make the best holes. It's a way to flip a problem on its head. And not everything can do that. Is, is that what makes us different? Is it our original righteousness? This is what I was taught in seminary, that the image of God was that at the beginning we were righteous and holy and pure, just like God, but that the image of God was somehow lost when we fell and that it has to be restored um, again. Is it that we're relational? That we don't just need one another for survival, but, but we we're made for connection with each other? Is it our curiosity? Descartes said, I think... Therefore I am, and what he really meant is, you know, I I struggle and I deal with these big questions. I I don't know that androids or anything else are sitting around pondering their their, their very being or their existence. There aren't many things in the animal kingdom that are gathered on a Sunday morning to, to just wrestle with questions of faith and life for 35 minutes, right? Is that what makes us different, that we're, that we're curious, that we wrestle, that we struggle, that we wonder? Is it that we have the ability to love? sacrificially. See, if, if you read different theologians, they'll land in different places. And the frustrating thing is, if this is the key for us understanding what our place is in the created world or in the world that, that even exists now that's becoming so different than even the world of Genesis, then, then what is it? Which one of these things is it? What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Now, chances are you've heard this before, you've wondered about this, and you have a hunch Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person next to you and just tell them what you think this means that we're made in the image of God. Is it one of these things? Is it something else? Go ahead. Turn to the person next to you and just say, what do you think it means? How are we different? What does this phrase mean? All right, and now I'm going to grade you and see if you got the right answer. Um, But in fact, I don't know the right answer. And anyone who tells you they know the right answer, they're lying to you. See, what's weird about Genesis is that this phrase means so much. It is the make or break thing that that separates us from everything else that God made. And yet, we don't understand what it is. But here's the good news. We don't have to understand exactly what it means in order to derive a benefit from it. You see, in Genesis... Um, it's clear. I mean, we went through that moment, and that was powerful. I mean, give props to our production team for putting that Genesis moment together. Um, the lights and the stuff. It's, it's just powerful to be immersed in that creative moment. But, but in the beginning, God did that, and, and it was so clear in creation that we were set apart. Every day it says, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. But after the sixth day, we didn't look at it. We'll look at it next week. God creates humans male and female, in his image. And, and when God steps back and looks at it on the sixth day, at the end of the sixth day, you know what he sees? You know what he says? He doesn't just say that it's good. He says it's very good. And it's like God gets to the end of his own creation and he, and he steps back and it takes his breath away because it's so complex, it's so intricate, it's so beautiful. But because 
you were there, because we were there, because we were the center of the created world. And then God makes clear, I mean, he he leaves us with his word so that we understand what makes us different, and he says that there's something in him that is also in us, and nothing else in the rest of creation has it. That it belongs to him, and he's given us a reflection or a shadow of it, We, we bear it in some way, and so that makes us different. It's God's way of guaranteeing us that even though we live in this amazing created world with so many interesting, powerful, beautiful things, it's God's way of guaranteeing for us, promising us that we still stand above, separate. We're still the pinnacle, the peak of creation, even when we ponder everything else that he made. Now, if that's true of everything that God made, then uh, to me it sure feels like that's still true when we're looking at all the things that we make, that we still stand above it all. See, see, what we need to understand is that when we ponder this whole thing, um, our place isn't earned. It has always been given. When we worry about being replaced and when you have those feelings... Uh, when you've been replaced by, by someone, something, when you feel diminished, when you feel like, you know, somehow less of yourself because you've been replaced, here's what you need to understand. Our place isn't earned, it's always been given. A bot takes your job, I know that's an ego blow, but that doesn't diminish your place, your status in this world that God made. Um, you, know, you lose a friend, I mean, I don't know, the hot Japanese bot might steal your husband someday, which is really weird. Um, but, you know, that, that, that doesn't mean that you've lost your place even when you've been replaced. You haven't lost your place because your place isn't earned. It's always been given. See, if we believe that our place is earned, then we can be outworked. We can be outperformed. We can even be outmoraled by different forms of technology because I'm sure robots can be more moral than I can. Just a matter of programming. You tell it what to do and it's always going to do what it's supposed to do. I'm a little more complex than that and so are you. But if it's a matter of performance or what we can do or what we contribute or even our our, our ability to be moral, if if it's something we have to earn and fight for, then yeah, we can be replaced. But if our status, if our place is given... And that's what we see in Genesis is that it's not earned. It's it's given before we could earn anything. Then that means it's simply part of who we are. And it's nothing that we have to do, nothing we have, we don't have to contribute anything. It's, It's just us. And that means we can relax. It means we can exhale. If our place is earned, we can be replaced. If it's given, if it's given, then that means that the only thing that can ever cause us to lose our place in creation, and and that is the highest place, the crown of creation, the pinnacle of creation, the only thing that can cause us to lose our place isn't if someone can come along and do it better or faster or more productively or more perfectly. The only thing that can cause us to lose our place is if the one who gave us that place decides to take it away. And I just got to tell you that our God, he's never going to take our place away. 
He's not looking to replace us. How do I know? Because Genesis says so, that in the beginning he stepped back and it took his breath away and we were given the crown of, you know, the crown of creation. We are the crown of his creation and, and we were formed in his image. But even more than that, you know how I know that we will never be replaced? Because not in Genesis, but in Jesus, God does Genesis in reverse. Do you know that? In Jesus, God does Genesis in reverse. What do I mean by that? Well, in Genesis, we are created in the image of God. In Jesus, God remakes himself in our image. Take anyone else's breath away. I mean, I get that in Genesis, God would, I mean, the fact that he would create us in his image, that that is so good of him, that is so generous of him, that he would give us a share of himself. But in Jesus, he does Genesis in reverse, and and he remakes himself in our image. He takes an attribute, a a, a quality of us, his creation, and he takes it up into himself. You want to talk about love? You want want to talk about worth and value? That God would forever change his very being, that he would remake himself to be a little more like us? I mean, can you think of a higher compliment? Can you think of greater security of God's unfailing love and our irreplaceable status in his created world? That, that Jesus took up flesh and he became not just God, but God in human flesh, God in human com- combined. And, and Jesus, he's sitting at the right hand of God in glory and he's ruling over the universe for us. And you know what? He's still in flesh. He's still fully God and fully human. God has not done that for anything else in the whole created world. He's only done that for us. That now, not only does, do we bear a part of him, but in, in the Trinity, in the triune God, he bears a part of us. And if you don't see it there, just look at what that God, human Jesus, what he did Because he went to a cross and he gave his life as a ransom to buy us back from a very tragic ending. To give us a chance at relationship with God and and new life and hope and direction and forgiveness and security and all the things that we long for. Jesus didn't do that for anything else in creation. He did that first and foremost for us. You know what that means? That means you can exhale. Because being replaced, it hurts. Whether it's by technology, whether it's by another person, whether it's by something else, it it hurts. It challenges us. It makes us wonder, like, are, are we worthy? Do we matter? Do we have any significance? Are we lovable? And yet what we hear today in creation in the incarnation where God does Genesis in reverse and, and, and he remakes himself in our image in redemption and Jesus giving his life is that we are like nothing else. Not just we. You. Singular. You are like nothing else to God. You're irreplaceable. And it doesn't matter if you can be outworked or outsmarted. You are like 
nothing else to God. Your status is secure. You know why? Because it's not earned. And I know this is so hard for us to understand because for the rest of life, we're out there trying to hustle for our worthiness, trying to prove to the world that, that we matter, that we've got something to contribute, and we're trying to do it in our relationships. And we're wearing ourselves out just trying to prove that we're worthy and that there's something good in us and that we're lovable. And yet, and yet here's what God's telling us. He's saying, you know what, that, that's all fine and good and strive to be good people, that's fine. But, but your place, your status, it's never been earned. It's always been given. You are worthy simply because God made you. He created you to be worthy. And you are loved because God made you to be an object of his love. Just exhale and relax for a minute in that. That means we don't have to strive. We don't have to hustle. We're simply allowed to be. I don't know who first coined the phrase, but they got it right when they called us human beings. Because it's not something that we have to do. It's just a part of who we are. And over the next several weeks, I'm eager to help unpack what it looks like to live as fully human in this very changing world. But right now, I just want you to grab onto this truth to relax, to exhale, to know that in your being, you are a person who is lovable, who is worthy, who is irreplaceable. God has declared it to be so. Therefore, it is so. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thanks for the amazing created world that you put us in. Even right now in summer, as a lot of us travel and we get to see beautiful things in the world, I'm just mindful of how extraordinary this creation is. And I recognize, because you put us at the top of this created order, that you've given us all of those things as a love gift, as a love offering to us. Thank you for that. Father, thank you for declaring before we ever did anything that we would be special that we would be irreplaceable, that we would be formed in your image. Even though I don't understand what that means fully, I thank you that I can know that I am not like anything else in all of the created world. Father, help me, help us today just relax and exhale and accept. Father, I praise you for the mystery of Jesus. That at a real point in time, you, you were willing to remake your very being in our image to claim part of us and make it part of yourself. Father, I don't understand why you'd do that. I don't understand that kind of love. But I'm so grateful for the pact that you've made with us that guarantees that we are irreplaceable. Father, thank you for Jesus' life, his death that is our redemption, that is our ransom, that brings us back to you in a whole way of living. Father, today, just let us grab on to the simple truth that who we are to you, it's not earned, it's given. Pray this all in Jesus' name.